Tarry here, where the stories never grow old, and you hear something new every time they are told, and it comes clear. So tarry here, where it doesn't matter your age, and when we gather round the table, we all take the stage year after year. So tarry here. Welcome to the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour. My name is Stasz Zielkowski, and I'll be flying solo today because uh, my partner, Fanny Crawford, is off to a retreat. And, and uh, she's still with us in storytelling, <laughs> in spirit, because she's at a storytelling retreat, which lasts a week. And... Um, she will be working intensely, guaranteed. Um, so today, <clears throat> the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour, coming to you from Bolivar, West Virginia. And here I am in Martinsburg, West Virginia. And <clears throat> our storytelling hour is introduced each week by the composition written by Andy Offit Irwin, Terry Here, musical composition and his original words. This is a great way to begin any storytelling effort. So today is the 22nd of January in 2024. What an unbelievable time. And it's pretty cold here. And so, and staying with the weather, today's show is going to be Winter Tales. And I'm going to be telling stories from the great storyteller, Hans Christian Andersen. And each one of them has a flavor of winter in it, some a little chillier than others. But before we get into that, thanks again to Andy, and thanks to our station manager, John Case, for producing the show. Stories in the Round is coming up. But so far, we do not have a list of the storytellers that will be performing. Um, when Fanny's on the radio next week, possibly we'll, we'll have those. However, Speak Story Series, which is located in Shepherdsburg, Shepherdstown, <laughs> um, West Virginia, and is run by Adam Booth. It's lined up for the year. And so I'm going to spend a couple minutes here speaking about that. Coming up in February is Gail Ross. Gail Ross is a member of the uh, Cherokee Nation. She is a direct descendant of John Ross who was the leader of the Cherokee Nation 
during the Trail of Tears. And Gail Roth will be entertaining in February, second Tuesday of each month, speakstoryseries.com. If you go to that website, you'll be able to get all the information about season tickets, about times and places. There will be a new, uh, well, a, a venue that has been used before, but this one is going to be for the entire series this year. A, a venue will be the community, the men's club, uh, a community center in Shepherdstown. And um, in March, we have Peter Cook, who is a deaf storyteller. And is a wonderful, wonderful storyteller. Antonio Raja, April, second Tuesday of the month at 7.30 p.m. at the Community Center in Shepherdstown. Antonio Raja. In May, Elizabeth Rose. In June, Dolores Hydock. In July, there will be a special storytelling presentation called the Crankies. This is a, a device where pictures on a background inside of a box are rotated in front of the audience so they can see the story as the storyteller is telling it. It's kind of like watching an old-time homemade movie. Um, that'll be Catherine Fahey and Daniel Van Allen. In August, Eileen Evans, one of the prominent storytellers in, in this general area and who has been doing storytelling for many, many years and, and does a great many interpretations of uh, African-American women. In September, we don't know yet, Adam is working on that contract. In October, Adam Booth will be presenting. Every year when Adam presents during this series, it is one of the most outstanding events of this series. And he will also have a guest who has not been announced yet. And in November, the 2024 commission piece, last year in 2023, uh, uh, Speak Story Series commissioned um, a storyteller to create an original piece, which the person who was selected was paid for, and Diane Macklin did a great job. And so in November, that piece will be premiered. So I think we're ready to begin with stories. And we will start with, of course, <laughs> who better than Hans Christian Andersen? <clears throat> Possibly one of the, of the most poignant stories ever told, ever written. Just a word about Andersen. Andersen wrote stories that were to teach children and, and to teach a lesson. So sometimes his stories are not as um, 
la-di-la and happy and all fulfilled as the Disney versions of them are. But they're more truthful. And they do have a powerful message in many of them. Some of them are, are very light, but they still always have a message. So here we go. This story is called The Little Match Girl. It was so horribly cold. It was snowing and it was beginning to get dark. It was also the last evening of the year. New Year's Eve. In the cold and dark, a poor little girl was walking along the street. Barefooted, bareheaded. Now, it's true that she was wearing slippers when she left home, but what good did that do? The slippers were much too big. Her mother had worn them last. That's how big they were. Excuse me. And the little girl lost them when she dashed across the street as two carriages raced by terribly fast. One slipper was nowhere to be found, and a boy ran off with the other. He said he could use it as a cradle when he had children of his own. <laughs> Some smart aleck. So there walked the little girl with her bare feet that were red and blue from the cold in an old apron. She carried some matches and a few she held in her hand. No one had bought any from her all day long. No one had given her so much as a little skilly. Hungry and cold, she walked along, looking so miserable, that poor little thing. Snowflakes fell on her long blonde hair that could curl beautifully at the nape of her neck, but she had no thought for such finery. Lights glowed in all the windows, and the street smelled wonderfully of roast goose. It was New Year's Eve, after all. Yes, that's what she was thinking. Over in a niche between two houses where one jutted out a little further into the street than the other, that's where she sat down, and she curled up. She tucked her little feet under her, but she froze even more. She didn't dare go home because she hadn't sold any matches and didn't have a single skillet. Her father would beat her, and it was cold at home, too. They barely had a roof over their heads, and the wind whistled right through, even though they had stuffed straw and rags into the biggest cracks. Her little hands were almost dead from the cold. Oh, how warm a little match would feel if only she dared take one, just one from the bundle, strike it against the wall and warm her fingers. She pulled one out. How it sparked. How it burned, it was a warm, bright flame, like a tiny candle when she cupped her hand around it. What an odd candle. <laughs> the little girl thought she was sitting in front of a big cast iron stove with shiny brass knobs and a brass belly. The fire burned so blissfully and felt so warm. Oh, what was that? The little girl had just stretched out her feet to warm them too often. The flame went out. The cast iron stove vanished. She was sitting with the little stub of the burned out match in her hand. She struck another. It burned, it glowed, and at the spot where the light touched the wall, it became transparent, like a veil. 
She was looking right into a room where the table was set with a dazzling white cloth and a fine porcelain. The roast goose was steaming wonderfully, stuffed with prunes and apples. And what was even more amazing, the goose leaped up from the platter and waddled across the floor with a knife and a fork in its back, right over to see the poor girl who came. Then the match went out and she could see nothing but the thick cold wall. She lit another. Then she was sitting under the loveliest Christmas tree. It was even bigger and more richly decorated than the one she had seen through the glass door of the rich merchant's house at Christmas. A thousand candles were burning on the green boughs and colorful pictures like the, of the ones that adorned the shop windows looked down at her. The little girl stretched both hands into the air and then the match went out. Oh, the Christmas candles rose higher and higher. She saw that they now had come to bright stars. One of them fell, leaving the long, fiery path in the sky. Someone is dying now, said the little girl, because her old grandmother, the only person who had ever been kind to her, but who was now dead, had told her, when a star falls, the soul rises up to God. She struck another match against the wall. It lit up everything around her, and it in radiance stood her old grandmother, so bright, so glittering, so gentle and blessed. Grandmother, cried the child. Well, take me with you. I know you'll be gone when the match goes out. Gone just like the warm cast iron stove, the lovely roast goose, and the big heavenly Christmas tree. Quickly, she struck all the other matches in the bundle. She wanted so much to hold on to her grandmother. And the matches burned with such a radiance that it was brighter than the light of day. Grandmother had never before looked so beautiful or so grand. She lifted the little girl into her arms, and they flew in radiance and joy so high, so high. And there was no cold, no hunger, no fear. They were with God. But in the niche of the house, in the cold early morning, the little girl sat with red cheeks and a smile on her lips, dead, frozen to death on the last evening of the old year. The morning of the new year rose up over the little body, sitting there holding all those matches, with one bundle almost completely charred. She had tried to warn herself, they said. No one knew what beauty she had seen, or with what radiance she and her old grandmother had passed into the joy of the new year. Hans Christian Andersen, the little match girl. Oh. What a wonderful story, and what a wonderful picture, although um, very, <laughs> very difficult uh, kind of picture to see, um, I mean, to really, to really um, imagine a little girl sitting against a, a, a stone wall where two houses are joined in bitter cold snow on the ground bare feet striking matches to keep warm I remember the very first time I read this story I had a hard time getting through it and um, 
first the first time I performed that story at a storytelling event. Um, the people audience liked it. Uh, they said that that I gave a, some some comments where they like gave a good impression of how scary it was for the little girl and how cold it was. And I don't know if I was giving such a good impression as I was feeling sorry for myself and feeling cold <laughs> while I was telling it. Anyway, I'd like you. I like to to use Hans Christian Andersen. I once got a chance to talk about his life at a storytelling um, event, uh, which was based on reading and and books for people in 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 a retirement home, and I was suggesting to them that they might find it interesting to investigate uh, Hans Christian Andersen because most of them had heard of him and knew something about some of his stories, but they knew very little about his life. And his life was very interesting. Um, not as exciting as, or maybe even more exciting than you would think, but um, not as much fun as his stories uh, suggest in some ways. Because the modern version of his stories as told in movies and things, for instance, like The Little Mermaid, um, if you would read the original story and then see the Disney version movie, you would find out that it's not the same story, that the story has been changed to make it um, less scary. Um, Hans Christian Andersen led an interesting life, a very diverse life, and a very strange life. So if you really want to read a, a good autobiography, look for Hans Christian Andersen. Once when I was in a uh, bookstore and I was looking at a number of different books, I heard uh, two women talking about um buying a book for their for children and she was looking at Hans Christian Anderson and I mentioned to her that uh, I asked her what the age of the child was and she told me it was an eight-year-old, nine-year-old child. I said, you might want to think about looking at others first until they get into storytelling and find out because Anderson is so realistic and some of his stories are very harsh. And, and the woman, they were both surprised. And I explained to her, read The Little Match Girl once or The Steadfast Ten Soldier. The stories are, are written to teach. And some of the lessons that they teach are difficult. So without further ado, and, and we've been going on for about 20 minutes now, let's go to the second story on today's agenda. This and this one is the steadfast tin soldier. So, once upon a time, there were twenty-five tin soldiers. They were brothers because they were all born from an old tin spoon. Rifles they held at their shoulders, and their faces looked straight ahead, red and blue. And oh, so lovely were the uniforms. When the lid was removed from the box in which they they the very first words they heard in the world were, Tin soldiers! That's what a little boy cried 
clapping his hands. <clears throat> they had been given to him because it was his birthday. And now he lined them up on the table. Each soldier looked exactly like the next, except for one who was slightly different. He had only one leg because he was the last to be cast, and there wasn't enough tin left. Yet he stood just as firmly on one leg as the others did on two. And he's the one who turned out to be remarkable. On the table where they stood were many other toys. But the one that was most striking was a charming castle made of paper. Through the tiny windows, you could see right into the halls. Outside stood small trees around a little mirror that was meant to look like a lake. Swans made of wax were swimming around on it, reflected in the mirror. The whole thing was so charming. And yet the most charming of all was a little maid who stood in the open doorway to the castle. She had also been cut out of paper, but she was wearing a skirt of the sheerest tulle and a tiny narrow blue ribbon over her shoulder like a sash. In the middle sat a gleaming spangle as big as her face. The little maiden was stretching out both arms because she was a dancer. And she was also lifting one leg so high in the air that the tin soldier couldn't see it at all. And he thought that she had only one leg just like him. Now there's a wife for me, he thought. But the looks rather refined. She looks rather refined and she lives in a castle. I have only a box and it has to hold 25 of us. That's no place for her. Still, I have to see about making her acquaintance. And then he stretched out full length behind the snuff box that stood on the table. From there, he could get a good look at the elegant little lady who continued to stand on one leg without losing her balance. Later that evening, all the other ten soldiers were put back in their box and the people of the house went to bed. Then the toys began to play. They gave tea parties, fought battles, and danced. The tin soldiers rattled in their box because they wanted to play too, but they couldn't open the lid. The nutcracker turned somersaults, and the slate pencil scribbled all over the slate. There was such a commotion that the canary woke up and started chattering too. And in verse, of all things, the only two who didn't budge were the tin soldier and the little dancer. She held herself erect on her toes, with her arms held out. He was just as steadfast on one leg, and his eyes didn't leave her for a second. Then the clock struck twelve, and bam, the lid of the snuff box flew open. But there was no tobacco inside. No, there was a little black troll. What a wily trick that was. Tin soldier, said the troll, keep your eyes to yourself. But the tin soldier pretended not to hear. Well, just wait till morning, said the troll. When morning came and the children got up, the tin soldier was moved over to the windowsill. And whether it was the troll or a gust of wind, all of a sudden the window flew open. And the soldier plummeted headfirst from the fourth, from the fourth floor. What a terrifying speed. With his leg turned upward, he landed on his cap with his bayonet stuck between the cobblestones. The serving girl and the little boy went downstairs at once to look for him, but even though they nearly stepped on him, they couldn't see him. If the tin soldier had shouted, here I am, they probably would have found him, but he didn't think it was proper to yell when he was in uniform. 
Then it started to rain. One drop came down faster than the other. It turned into a regular downpour. When it was over, two street urchins came along. Hey, look, there's a tin soldier lying there. Let's send him out for sale. And so they made a boat out of a newspaper, set the tin soldier in the middle of it, and he sailed off down the gutter. The two boys ran alongside, clapping their hands. What waves there were in that gutter, and what a current. Well, it's true that there had just been downpour. The paper boat punched, pitched up and down, and at times it would spin so fast that the tin soldier swayed, but he remained steadfast, his expression unflinching, standing erect with his rifle at his shoulder. All of a sudden, the boat washed in under a plank that lay over the gutter. It grew just as dark as inside the box. I wonder where I'll end up now, he thought. Yes, well, this is all the trolls fought. Oh, if only the little maiden was sitting here in the boat, then I wouldn't care if it was twice as dark. At that moment, a big water rat appeared. It lived under the gutter plank. Have you got a travel pass? That's the rat. Let's see your travel pass. But the sin soldier didn't say a word, holding his rifle even tighter. The boat raced along with the rat right behind it. Oh, it gnashed its teeth, shouting to sticks and pieces of straw. Stop him, stop him. He didn't pay the toll. He didn't show his travel pass. But the current grew stronger and stronger. The thin soldier could already glimpse daylight up ahead where the plank ended. But he also heard a roaring sound that would scare even a brave man. Just imagine. Where the plank ended, the gutter plunged right into a huge canal. For him, it would be just as dangerous as for us to sail over an enormous waterfall. He was already so close that he couldn't stop. The boat pushed forward. The poor tin soldier held himself as upright as he could. No one was going to say that he so much as blinked an eye. The boat spun around three or four times and filled with water up to the rim. It was going to sink. The tin soldier was standing in water up to his neck, and the boat sank deeper and deeper. The paper began dissolving faster and faster. Then the water was over the soldier's head. That's when he thought about the charming little dancer whom he would never see again. In his ears, the soldier heard, flee, warrior, flee, death is after you. Then the paper fell apart, and the tin soldier plunged right through. At that very moment, he was swallowed by a big fish. Oh, how dark it was inside. It was even worse than under the gutter plank, and it was much more cramped. But the tin soldier was steadfast and stretched out full length with his rifle at his shoulder. The fish thrashed about, making the most terrifying movements. Finally, it grew quite still, and what looked like a bolt of lightning flashed through it. The light shone so bright, and someone cried loudly, Tin soldier! The fish had been caught, brought to market, sold, and then ended up in a kitchen where the serving girl slid it open with the big knife. Putting two fingers around his waist, she plucked out the soldier and carried him into the parlor, where everyone wanted to see the remarkable man who had traveled inside the belly of a fish. But the tin soldier was not the least bit proud of himself. They set him on the table, and there, oh, what strange things can happen in the world. The tin soldier was in the very same parlor where he had been before. He saw the very same children and the toys on the table and the lovely castle with the charming little dancer. She was still standing on one leg with the other lifted high in the air.
she too was steadfast. The tin soldier was touched. He was just about to weep tears of tin, but that wouldn't be proper. He looked at her and she looked at him, but neither said a word. At that moment, one of the little boys picked up the soldier and tossed him right into the stove, giving no explanation at all. The troll in the box was most certainly to blame. The tin soldier stood there, brightly lit, and felt the terrible heat. But whether it was from the actual fire or from love, he didn't know. The paint had worn right off him. But whether this had happened on his journey or from sorrow, no one could say. He looked at the little maiden. She looked at him, and he felt himself melting. But he still stood there, steadfast, with his rifle at his shoulder. Then a door opened. The wind seized hold of the dancer, and she flew like a sylph right into the stove to the tin soldier, burst in flame, and was gone. Then the tin soldier melted into a lump. The next day, when the servant girl took out the ashes, she found him in the shape of a little tin heart. But all that was left of the dancer was the spangle, and that had been burned black as coal. The Steadfast Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen. What a lesson. What a lesson. If, if I were a, a, a teacher of English or, or perhaps history, and I, were, I, I was a teacher years ago. I taught science and math, astronomy. But if I were a teacher of, of storytelling, and I have been in a way at, at schools as a guest or in libraries, I would use this example to teach about life and about how people connect how people suffer, how people go through all kinds of trials. But if they find love, it will help them get through almost anything. And the story of the steadfast and soldier has always been one of my favorites because it is about finding love and about being steadfast and doing your duty as every commander would want his soldiers to do. And it has an, it does have a happy ending in the sense that at the end of the story, the tin soldier and the little dancing lady wound up together. And in all the great romances, that's what you would like to happen, even though in real life, it often doesn't. But a story like that would give you a chance as a, as a teacher with young people for a chance to discuss about life and how things aren't always perfect. But there's still some good and there's hope. And the many of Hans Christian Andersen's stories relied on that. So I will say you've been listening 
to Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour, coming to you from EnlightenedRadio.com. And this is um, our, our storytelling hour is turned into a podcast. So tall tales at enlightenradio.org. If you go to that website, you will find about five and a half years of broadcasts that Fanny and I have done um, of stories, many different kinds of stories. Some fairy tales, some traditional tales, jack tales, tales from Appalachia, tales from all over the world, plus some personal tales about our lives and about uh, some of the stories that we have performed on different stages and um, also stories of all kinds. Stories that make you laugh, stories that may make you cry, um, stories that are just a couple minutes long, stories that are 30 minutes long or even longer and information about storytelling. Storytelling is, is it, since 1973 when the National Storytelling Festival was inaugurated in Jonesboro, Tennessee has grown to be a worldwide phenomenon. Countries throughout the world now celebrate storytelling with festivals and uh, Jonesboro has an average attendance of between ten and twelve thousand people. Um, in in Utah, the storytelling festival in Utah sometimes hosts as many as twenty thousand people, and during their festival, and there are many festivals throughout the country that promote storytelling. Since the pandemic, storytelling on Zoom has been blooming. And some storytellers have found that they do not have to travel very much anymore. They do a, a Zoom presentation, storytelling, and some of the best storytellers in the country do a regular weekly show or, or even a monthly pr- presentation where they gather a group of storytellers and do it through this Zoom process. And people can tune in and um, some of the storytelling is done much like this. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to this. Um, and some of the Zoom performances are done free of charge. Or the storyteller will announce that if you care to make a donation to continue, help them continue their career, um, they accept that. Um, so it's, it's worthwhile investing in that. If you like the stories, join in. All right. Enough of uh, promotions. Let's take a look at another story. This one, 
this one is truly in in the the vein of I don't know if that's the right word, but in in the style of Hans Christian Andersen, where uh, it's used to teach lessons, and it uses objects. A top and a ball lay in a drawer among the other toys. And then the top said to the ball, why don't we be sweethearts since we're lying here in this drawer together? But the ball, which was made of Morocco leather and had as high an opinion of herself as an elegant lady, refused even to reply to such a suggestion. The next day, the little boy who owned the toys came in. He painted the top red and yellow and pounded a brass tack into the middle of it. The top looked quite magnificent when it spun around. Look at me. Look at me, the top said to the ball. What do you say now? Shouldn't we be sweethearts? We suit each other so well. You leap and I dance. No one can be happier than the two of us. Oh, is that what you think, said the ball? You don't seem to realize that my father and mother were Morocco leather slippers or that I have a cork in my middle. Yes, but I made of mahogany, said the top, and the judge himself made me. He has his own lathe, and he did it with the greatest of pleasure. Am I really supposed to believe that, said the ball? May I never be spun again if I'm lying, replied the top. You present yourself well, said the ball, but even so, I, I can't. I'm almost as good as engaged to a swallow. Every time I fly up in the air, he sticks his head out of the nest and says, Will you? And now I'm inwardly, I've inwardly said yes, and that's almost as good as an engagement. But I promise I'll never forget you. Oh, well, that's a big help, said the top. And then they said no more to each other. The next day, the ball was taken out. The top watched as she flew high up in the air, just like a bird, until she was out of sight. Each time, of course, she, she came back down. But she always made a big leap when she touched the ground. And that was either from longing or because she had a cork in the middle. The ninth time, the ball disappeared and didn't come back. The boy looked and looked, but the ball was gone. I know where she probably is, side to top. She's in the swallow's nest. The more the top thought about it, the more entranced he became with the ball, precisely because he couldn't have her. That's why his love kept growing. The fact that she had taken another was a strange thing about it. And the top danced and spun around. But he was always thinking about the ball, who in his thoughts grew more and more beautiful. Many years passed in this fashion, and by then it had become an old love. And the top, who was no longer young, but the, one day he was gilded all over. He had never looked so splendid. He was now a golden top. And he leaped until he hummed. Oh, yes, he was quite something. But with one leap, he went too high and he was gone. They looked and looked even down in the cellar, but the top was nowhere to be found.
Where was he? He would jump into the trash pan where all sorts of things lay, cabbage stalks, sweepings, and rubber and rubble that had fallen from the leaves. Well, <laughs> this is certainly a fine place to be. The gilding will soon come right off me. And what sort of riffraff have I landed upon? He looked around and cast a sidelong glance glance at a long cabbage stalk that had been picked too clean and at a strange round object that looked like an old apple. But it wasn't an apple. It was an old ball that had lain for many years up in the eaves with water seeping through it. Thank God someone might equal has finally arrived. Someone I can talk to, said the bull. Looking at the gilded top, I'm actually made of Morocco leather, stretched together, stitched together by maiden hands, and I have a cork in my middle, but no one would know that by looking at me. I was just about to celebrate my wedding to a swallow, but then I landed in eaves, and that's where I've been for five years, seeping water. That's, that's a long time to be soaked and wet for a lady. But the top didn't say a word. He was thinking about his old sweetheart. The more he listened, the more he felt sure that this ball was his sweetheart. Then the maid came to, an, to empty the trash. Hey, here's the golden top, she said. And the top was brought back to the parlor with great ceremony, but nothing was heard of the ball. And the top never said another word about his old love which fades when your sweetheart is laying in the eaves for five years, seeping water. Why, you wouldn't even recognize her if you met her in the trash bin. Oh, that tugs at your heartstrings, doesn't it? But what a lesson. What a lesson to teach young ones. That you can fall in love and perhaps you won't have the chance to live together with your loved one for all kind of reasons. But, but if you live for a while, you may run into your old love again. Uh, how many of us, I'm only speaking for men, I can't since Fanny's not here to share her, her feelings, I can't speak about how a woman would feel about that. But I know from my own experience, I had a young love when I was a teenager. And that love ended in an ordinary, normal way. Time, distance, separation. Those things came between us. And we wound up going our separate ways. And now, 60 years later, I haven't seen her. But I have fond memories of the young girl. And I wonder what it would be like if I were to see her now as a woman of maybe 80 years old, if I would recognize her. And if I did in any way, would I still have those feelings 
and I suspect that there would be some there would be some remembrance and feelings. I think that's a, a lesson that children can learn from stories by Hans Christian Andersen. Well, we're talking about winter tales and tales written by Hans Christian Andersen. Um, I've told many of his tales over the years. I always like his tales. Uh, I've done some of his tales on the radio before and um, uh, I, I used before my before I had to have my left shoulder surgically replace the the shoulder blade itself was damaged and and I had to give up playing the accordion. I was not a professional accordionist, but I did play for many years. And I, in storytelling, I used my accordion and I would do some Hans Christian Andersen tales. Um, the King's New Clothes is one of my favorites. And another one is The Ugly Duckling. And um, both of those tales worked really well with music. And I fashioned my storytelling of those tales when I did uh, library shows or even school shows using my accordion because um, I found out over the years that young children love the sound of the accordion. Many people make jokes about the accordion. Once in doing a school show, I stood up after I had been introduced and from the back, this was at high school, and from the back of the auditorium, there were only maybe 200, 250 students there and teachers but on the back of the auditorium one of the one of the boys called out i assumed it was a boy because of the timbre of the voice oh my goodness he's old and he's gonna play the accordion <laughs> I, I loved it i laughed and when i laughed the audience laughed too and i said that is the great introduction i am old and i am gonna play the accordion and I think you'll like it. And I started in. And um, that, that was, it was just so much fun. So enough about my adventures. Let's get back to Hans Christian Andersen. And our final story for today at the Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour is called The Snowman. What better way to end a series of tales called Winter Tales? I'm creaking all over. So wonderfully cold, said the snowman. The wind can certainly bite life into a person. And how that glowering creature over there is glaring. It was the sun he meant. It was just about to go down. She's not going to make me blink. I know how to hold on to, to my tiles. He had two big rectangular roof tiles for his eyes. His mouth was part of an old rake, and that's why he had teeth. He was born to the boys' shouts of hurrah, greeted with the clanging of bells and the crack of whips from the sleighs. The sun went down, 
the full moon rose big and round, bright and lovely in the blue sky. There we have her again from a different direction, said the snowman. He thought of it was the sun that had reappeared. I've taught her not to glare. <laughs> now she can hang there and shine so I can see myself. If only I knew what to do so I could move. I would dearly like to move. I could do that. I would go down and slide around on the ice the way the boys were doing, but I don't know how to run. Gone, gone, barked the old watchdog. He was rather hoarse and had been that way ever since he was house pet and lay under the stove. The sun will surely teach you to run. I saw that happen to your predecessor last year and to his predecessor too. Gone, gone, every one of them gone. I don't understand what you're saying, my friend, said the snowman. Is that thing up there supposed to teach me to run? He meant the moon. Well, it's true that the, that she ran off before when I gave her a, serene, a stern look, but now she's sneaking up from a different direction. You don't know a thing, said the watchdog, but then you're only recently been put patted together. What you're looking at is called the moon. The one that left is the sun. She'll be back in the morning. She'll teach you to run down to the moat. We'll soon have a change in the weather. I can feel that. It is in my left-hand line leg. I've got a shooting pain in it. We're due for a change in the weather. I don't understand him, said the snowman, but I have the feeling that he's telling me something unpleasant. The one that was shining and went down, the one he calls the sun, I have a feeling that she's not my friend either. Gone, gone, barked the watchdog as he spun around three times and then lay down inside his house to, keep, to go to sleep. Change in the weather truly did come. A fog, thick and damp, spread in the early morning hour over the entire region. At dawn came a light breeze. The wind was so icy that the frost took a, a firm grip. But what a sight there was when the sun came up. All the trees and limbs were covered with rime. It looked like an entire forest of white corals, as if all the branches were heaped with dazzling white flowers. The infinitely numerous and delicate network of branches, which is impossible to see in the summer because of all the leaves, now appeared. Every single twig, it was a lacework, and so glittering white, as if white snow were streaming from every branch. The weeping birch stirred in the wind. There was life in it, like like in the trees during the summer, it was lovely beyond compare. And when the sun rose, oh, how it, everything sparkled. Oh, all across the snow on the ground glittered huge diamonds. Or you might also think that countless tiny little candles were burning, even whiter than the white snow. It is lovely beyond compare, said a young girl who had come into the garden with the young man and stopped right next to the snowman. There's no sight as lovely as this in the summertime, she said. And a lad like that, we wouldn't find it all, said the young man, pointing at the snowman. He's splendid. The young girl laughed, nodded at the snowman, and then danced with her friend across the snow, which creaked under them as if they were treading on starch. Who are those two, the snowman asked. You've been on the manor longer than I have. Do you know them? Yes, I do. She once fed in me. He once gave me a meat bone. Those two I wouldn't bite. But what are they doing here? Sweetheart, said the watchdog. They're going to move into a doghouse together and gnaw on bones. Gone, gone. Are those two just as important as you and I? They belong to the master's family, of course, said the watchdog. 
how little a person knows when he's been born yesterday. I can see that about you. I have age and knowledge. I know everyone here on the manor. And I've known a time when I didn't have to stand out here in the cold on a chain. Gone, gone. The cold is lovely, said the snowman. Tell me more. Tell me more. But you mustn't rattle your chain. It makes me creak inside. Gone, gone, barked the watchdog. A pup I once was. Little and charming, they said. Back then I lay on the velvet chair inside the manor. Lay on the laps of the whole family. They kissed me on the snout and wiped my paws and, and, and with, with nice handkerchiefs. I was called the loveliest and little doggy, but then I got too big for them. So they gave me to the housekeeper. I wound up in the cellar. You look down into it from where you're standing. can look right into the room where I was a master because I was living with the housekeeper. It was a more modest place than upstairs, I suppose, but more comfortable. I wasn't hugged and hauled around by the children the way I was upstairs. The food was just as good as before, and there was more of it. I had my own pillow, and there was the stove. At this time, he realized that's the loveliest thing in the world. I crept all the way under it, so I was completely out of sight. Oh, I still dream about that stove. Gone. Gone. Does the stove look so lovely? Does it look like me? It's just the opposite of you. It's cold black with a long neck and a brass belly. It devours wood so that fire points fire points out of its mouth. You have to keep to one side of it. Very close, right underneath. Oh, such boundless comfort. You should be able to see it through the window from where you're standing. And the snowman looked and he actually saw a black polished object with a brass belly. Why did you leave her, said the snowman. He felt the stove had to be a female creature. How could you ever leave such a place? Well, I was forced to, said the dog. They threw me outside and put me here on a chain. I bit the youngest squire in the leg because he kicked away the leg leg bone I was gnawing on. And a leg for a leg, in my mind. I didn't take it well. From that day on, I've stood out here, chained up, and I've lost my clear voice. Just listen to how hoarse I am. Gone, gone, and that was the end of that. The slow man wasn't listening anymore. He was still looking inside the housekeeper's cellar quarters, peering down into her room where the, the stove stood on its four cast iron legs and looked to be about the same size as the snowman himself. It's creaking so strangely inside of me, he said. Will I never be allowed inside there? It's a harmless wish. And surely our harmless wishes should be fulfilled. Oh, I must go inside and must lean against her, even if I have to break the window. You'll never get inside there, said the watchdog. If you reach the stove, then you'd be gone. Gone. I'm not really as good as gone. I think I'm breaking in half. All day long, the snowman stood there looking in the window. At dusk, the room became even more inviting. From the stove came such a gentle light, not like the glow of the moon or the sun. No, but only the way a stove <coughs> excuse me, can glow and there's something inside. The door opened and flames would shoot out, as they usually did. The slow man's face <coughs> flared bright red. He was red all down his chest. <coughs> excuse me. How becoming she looks when she sticks out her tongue. The night was very long, but not for the snowman. He stood lost in his own lovely thoughts, and they froze so they creaked. 
In the early morning, however, the cellar windows were frosted over. They bore the loveliest ice blossoms that any snowman could ask for, but they had, <clears throat> but they hid the, sn- the stove. Excuse me, take a drink. The window panes refused to thaw out. He couldn't see her. There was a creaking and crunching. It was exactly the kind of frosty weather that should please some man. But he was not pleased. He could and should have felt so happy, but he was not happy. He was suffering from stove longing. That's a bad sickness for a snowman, said the watchdog. I too have suffered from that sickness. But I go got over it. Gone, gone. Now we're going to have a change in the weather. And and the weather and <clears throat> the change in the weather arrived. The frost turned turned to thaw. Thaw grew stronger. Snowman grew weaker. Didn't say a word. One morning he toppled over. Something that looked like a broomstick was poking up in the air where he had stood. That's what the boys had built him around. Now I can better understand his longing, said the watchdog. The snowman had a stove poker in his body. That's what was stirring inside him. Now that's over. Gone, gone. Soon winter was over too. Gone, gone, barked the watchdog. But the little girls on the manor sang, Spout forth, Woodruff, fresh and fair. Hang down, Willow, your mitten pair. Come, cuckoo, come, lark, let's sing. In February, we'll, we'll be having spring. I'll sing along. Chirp, chirp, cuckoo. Come, dear son, come often too. And no one gave another thought to the snowman because he was gone. Hans Christian Anderson, the snowman. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think we can wrap up the show. You've been listening to the Lighten uh, Enlightened Radio Storytelling Hour. Um, I'm your host for today, Stosh Zielkowski. And next week, Fanny Crawford will be back with more stories. So, John, right. I hope you liked the show today. Oh, I thought it was uh, great. I was in tears, you know, with the first <laughs> one, you know, and... Um, you know, you're right. I remember from long ago that the uh, actual Hans Christian Andersen stories, not to mention many other stories, are oh my goodness. don't yeah. have the Disney touch. I had the pleasure of meeting a man uh, many years ago in, in Pennsylvania. I met him who um, performs as Hans Christian Andersen. He dresses up in the old time clothes and everything, and uh, just does a, a absolutely marvelous job of telling Anderson's tales. Um, oh, wow. and he also does does it for children. And he also does it for adults. And in his adult mm-hmm. performances, he tells the tales straight out, un, unburnished, <laughs> right? And 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 talks a little bit about his life, um, which is very enlightening. Yeah. And um, right. it's, it's interesting. I think it's difficult for um, for uh, tr- some people to imagine. It's difficult for some people to imagine um, someone doing a in person uh, presentation. 
Um, but I have met some storytellers who do some marvelous ones. And, of course, mm-hmm. our Fanny Crawford does a f- fantastic job of telling her grandfather's stories oh, and sure. her mother's stories. Her family's her stories. Yeah, right. I know. All right. You know, and, uh, I, I do tell some family stories, but I don't do any voices like Fanny does. I don't I don't try to become somebody else. Right. I, I have performed as uh, you know, individuals. But I, yeah. Um, yeah. She does. It's, a, it's an interesting thing that she does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, let me stop record, rec- recording now. Okay, and uh, okay, thanks.